0: Well, good evening. If you have your Bibles this evening, you may turn to First Kings chapter 4, and we'll look at just the first 19 verses tonight. Dale Ralph Davis is one commentator that I enjoy reading. He has a good seriousness about him, but he also has sometimes humorous ways of describing certain things. And in his commentary, he gives an illustration about planning he goes back to the 1948 arab israeli war and an israeli force a smaller force they seized a town or a village that was arab named Castel and that particular village controlled the western approaches to jerusalem defenses of the village was turned over to 70 jewish soldiers they were outnumbered 400 arab fighters to their 70 And the leader of the Arab fighters' name was Kamal Ikarat. 400 men came screaming at the 70 Jewish soldiers. Uh, They were screaming, Allah Akbar, God is great. And the humor of the way Davis tells this story is, time out, time out, time out. The Arabs got there, and after realizing that they were without food themselves for 24 hours, they were ready to attack the village and they were so exhausted they had to stop and the ladies from the village had to come and bring food for the soldiers. And once they were fed, they were on the attack again and it looked like the village would fall and that the Jewish soldiers would be overtaken. Time out, time out, time out. The ammunition was low. You're starting to get the idea that someone didn't plan something here. And that's exactly what happened. What happened? When their leader was shot by an Israeli, when they lacked ammunition, the Arabs, they only had one medic and one medical kit in the village. And so Del Ralph Davis is illustrating that, you know, if you want to think that planning is tedious, it's a matter of whether you win or lose a battle. And so our evening uh, message tonight is really about the theme of organization, organization. And we see this in a wonderful way, for the most part, in First Kings chapter four, verses one through 19, is a positive picture of the benefits that God gave to Solomon as he thought about how the kingdom of God at that time would be organized. First Kings four tells us how God, God's wisdom to Solomon was used to organize his kingdom. In these 19 verses, we witness Solomon's wisdom in this particular area. Now, initially, when you think about hearing Bible teaching about organization, you may begin to roll your eyes and say, I wish I would have stayed home tonight. But as we study this passage before us, I trust that we will all come to the conclusion, and perhaps we already know this, that organization and words related to that, like administration, structure, planning, management, those are important whether a person lived in the Old Testament or whether we live now in the era after the coming of Jesus. Our first thought here is organizational wisdom is good. It's not something that is bad. It's a fruit of Wisdom that God granted to Solomon. And again, here in the big picture of these, uh, of really the whole chapter, but especially in these first 19 verses, we remember that Solomon was granted that prayer request and God gave him wisdom. And now we see another example. We saw one at the end of chapter three, right? Remember the two prostitutes and the sword and the living child. And now we see how Solomon implemented that gift of wisdom and how he administered the kingdom. And so let's look, first look at some of the benefits of administration, of, a, of organization, of planning. Again, you look at the names in this chapter, and most of these 19 verses are all hard names to pronounce. You know, initially I thought to myself, there's no way I would ever have one message devoted to these 19 verses, I, I was going to do the whole chapter. And then I realized after coming upon another author's writing, it's probably better to just focus on these first 19 verses. There, there, there is a lot of application to this, whether we realize it or not. The first six verses begin King Solomon was king over all Israel, and these were his high officials. Azariah, the son of Zadok, was the priest, Elihoreph, and Ahijah. The sons of Shisha were secretaries. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was in command of the army. Zadok and Abiathar were priests. Azariah, the son of Nathan, was over the officers. Zabud, and the son of Nathan, was priest and king's friend. Ahishar was in charge of the palace, and at Adoniram, the son of Abda, was in charge of the forced labor. Since our theme is about organization, we know right away that these are important names, right? These are high officials that served under King Solomon's royal administration. I think there are 11 names there of these particular high officials. Some of these names are relatives of Solomon, and that makes perfect sense to me. There are two sons-in-laws, and there are two nephews. Other names are familiar to us, and they are close supporters of King Solomon. Again, the names of some of these people we may recognize from our previous study of the book of Samuel. The support of Nathan, remember him, Zadok, and Benaiah. Those people who supported Solomon, their support was critical to Solomon's rise to power. They represent kind of the prophetic, the priestly, and even military leadership. Solomon put men that he could trust in charge, and these men were loyal to his rule as king, and they were willing to do the kingdom work that he called them to do. And their their, their duties must have covered a, a whole range of things that they were called to specifically focus upon. Now, certainly Solomon employed many other people in his administration. These are the prominent names for us to, you know, have before us this morning. And again, the, the, the entire section tonight there, is just filled with name after name after name. And many of these names mean nothing to us, to be honest, right? We don't know any of these people. And I, I didn't focus on this tonight, but uh, some commentators pointed out some helpful things that names are important to God. They're important to God in the Old Testament, and they're important to God in the local church. And there are examples throughout church history of some local churches that kept meticulous records. And we know things, right, from the way they did things and the way they kept records of this person did this and this person did that that help us understand certain things of how they developed. And and that is very helpful to us today. Again, the the temptation is to come to a chapter like this and kind of, quickly skim over it because it does seem initially boring to us to talk about the theme of organization and administration we've all heard these sayings one is too many cooks spoils the broth another one that i like and i find quite humorous is a camel is a horse designed by a committee and there are lots of jokes about church committee meetings that accomplish very little. And so I am—I I do like some of those jokes, but I'm not against having meetings in general, if they're productive. Solomon's wisdom in government administration displays both a continuity with his father David, right? He keeps some of the same men, they're loyal men, but there is also a kind of debar- departure, or even we could say development, as he becomes king. He he does some significant things and decisions. He, there is some new organization and structure in the country, as we witness in verses 7 through 19. We read in these verses of, of 1 through 6 of secretaries and recorders, your translation may say scribe. Many commentators believe that this was a professional title, and it may be equivalent today to something like our secretary of state. This is a very significant office. One suggestion for the interpretation here in, 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 in the, the the list of the recorders of the secretaries, there are two names given. Perhaps one was for domestic affairs and the other was for foreign affairs. I mean, our governments today are structured around these kinds of things, aren't they? Ahishar was in charge of the palace. He was the controller, one commentator says, of the royal household and a state. And another commentator, Donald Weissman, points out that this was a significant role, and it becomes very significant in Judah. It becomes really the prime minister later on in the book of Kings. And even in Isaiah, interestingly, this, this official title appears on the tomb inscription of Shebna. What are some drawbacks to administration? Do we see anything in those first six verses that might give us pause? Before we attempt to answer this question, let us remind ourselves that this particular part of 1 Kings 4 is overwhelmingly positive in its description of how Solomon organized and ruled as king. And we should be aware of that. But there might be a hint of some trouble that could be brewing in the years to follow. This is in the first four years of Solomon's reign of what we're reading. He has not yet begun the building of of his building projects. That begins in his fourth year. But the overall tone of this chapter is very positive. We know that because a verse that is not included tonight is verse 20. And that verse tells us that the people of God were happy with this reign, right? They ate and drank and they were happy with what Solomon had done. Reichen points out that what, it, what is somewhat surprising to see is that despite his earlier opposition, right, Abiathar is still a priest. Do you remember what happened to him or what was supposed to happen to him earlier on in the book of Kings? David fired him, didn't he? He exiled him, go home. And here it seems that somehow he has been restored to the royal court. And other commentators have looked at this a a bit more negative than others, but it seems here in in verse 2 we read that Azariah, son son of Zadok, is the high priest. The the definite article is there. I mean, what's happened to Zadok? That comes as a surprise to us. Verse 4 we have the appearance of priest without the definite article. Apparently, we are, we are meant to understand, and we haven't been told how this happened, that Zadok of verse 4 has either stepped down from being high priest or somehow he's been demoted himself. And his son is now the high priest. I don't have any good explanation for what happened here as is given to us in, in chapter 4 as compared to chapter 2. Ian Proven, trying to figure out what what do we make of this name Abiathar in verse 4, he says, right, the last time we met him in chapter 2, verse 27, he was deposed. He was sent home. Here he seems to be somehow reinstated, and he says that's not surprising because he thinks Solomon was sinning in chapter 2. I didn't come to that conclusion. He thought Solomon was performing vengeance with all of the justice he was doing in chapter 2. Either way, we seem to have a son that is the high priest, and these two former priests are now equals. By now we know that the names given in this list of these first six verses, they are the highest ranking, kind of what we would call cabinet members, the highest officials in Solomon's kingdom. These were important positions for Solomon to carry out his organizational wisdom in ruling God's kingdom. Now, did you notice what the second half of verse 6 says? That last high official? And Adoniram, the son of Abda, was in charge of the forced labor. Forced labor. What do we make of that little comment? Before we try to think more about that, an illustration of a drawback to administration, we could... Think about the Nazis in Germany. They're they're an easy example. We probably overuse them too much. If I was German, I would probably get tired of it myself. But the Nazis were amazing at organization, weren't they? They were perhaps some of the most efficient people in the world at that time at, at being excellent organizers. They, in a sense, were proud that their trains were always on time. Even though those trains were going to some terrible places and what they were doing was very evil, those trains were accurate. They kept meticulous records of everything that they did. They had the ability to scrutinize nearly every angle of a situation and come up with specific details and plans for how they would accomplish their goals. They were known for their vast empire of organization through scrupulous record keeping and efficiency in carrying out their plans. They were so effective, they murdered, they executed millions of Jews and almost destroyed Europe in the process. That is a a modern example of how organization can go terribly wrong. And that is a major drawback. But what about this phrase, there was forced labor in Israel? That that doesn't sound too good, and that's not talking about homeschooling. One thing in this orderly account seems a little bit off, doesn't it? And it's this one. Especially for a nation that had been enslaved, and they themselves were under forced labor to the Egyptians, here we read that there is a, a Hebrew Adoniram in Solomon's kingdom that is char- he's in charge of all of the forced labor. Didn't the prophet Samuel say something about this in warning the people when they first wanted to have a king over them? Putting someone in charge of forced labor is another warning sign that Solomon is not the perfect king. He does have some significant flaws. And even authors that I don't even read that much, one example here is Walter Brueggemann comments, and he says this about this particular verse. He says, First King seems to to be a tale of boundless success, prestige, power, and wealth. And in some sense, it really is, isn't it? All the things for which the king did not ask in chapter 3, but that God gave him anyway. If we remember the outcome of the Solomon story in chapters 11 and 12, that's where we're going. And if we pay attention to the subtle detail of the text, however, we may notice below the surface of this success, the rumblings of troublesome things to come. And this is a reminder of something that Samuel the prophet told the people of of God back in 1 Samuel chapter 8. I'm going to read from... Verse 10 of that chapter It begins, These will be the ways of the king who reigns over you. And then we drop down to verses 16, 17, and 18. Samuel warned them, and he said this, Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys, he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks, and you yourself yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. The context there is when the people clamored for a king and they wanted their first king. And the Bible tells us quite clearly they wanted a king so that they could be just like the other nations, 1 Samuel 8.5. Now, let's not make the mistake of just concluding automatically that it was sinful for the Israelites to ask for a king. It was not sinful to ask for a king, in my understanding. It is because the the issue is how they asked. They demanded a king, didn't they? Basically telling Samuel, you better put a king over us, and it's understandable in verse 7 of 1 Samuel 8 why Samuel was a little hot under the collar. God told Samuel, they're not rejecting you, they are rejecting me. So this Adoniram oversees the forced labor. Solomon will draft people from among the own, the 12 tribes, but also he will draft people from the people he subjugates or people that come serving him from the Gentile nations. Now we know that this job would have been unpopular. We could already envision that. Later in 1 Kings, we will learn particularly how this man dies. And that confirms that his job was very unpopular with the Israelites. Our second thought this growth, it's not a guarantee, it's not automatic, but at this point, Israel has already grown. They are a numerous nation, aren't they? How did Solomon organize the kingdom further than just those 11 key high officials? Reichen states, this. he he says, in addition to everything that he had done with the government leaders, he now appoints provincial governors throughout the whole territory of his nation, of his domain. And as we read through these and look through these texts, one of the basic functions of these administrators is to each one supply food for the royal household one month a year. Twelve months of the year, we need twelve administrators to do this, so your job is to do January, February, and so on throughout the year. That was their job. And we'll start by reading only verse 7. Solomon had 12 officers over all Israel who provided food for the king and his household. Each man had to make provisions for one month in the year. This is something new, isn't it? This is something new that David, I don't know if he envisioned this. I don't know if David ever talked to Solomon about this, but the nation is divided up. And then at the end of verse 19, I'm not going to read all of those names we read. There was one governor who was over the land. And so you can look at verses 8 through 19, all of those names in, in those particular regions. And people have tried to draw, draw sketches of maps about where these regions went in Israel. Because of Israel's size, their diversity, and so on, Solomon could not govern it simply by himself. He has some big goals, as we will see in the next chapters of Kings That without some kind of extensive administrative system, that is one way in which he will accomplish some of these goals. And that is why organizational wisdom, it's important for Solomon and it should be important for us today as Christians. Solomon had prayed for wisdom, and God had granted that wisdom. And in particular, Solomon was aware that already the people of Israel, they were so numerous, they were so large, that he wanted to be able to govern and lead them in a way that was effective, in a way that was wise. And so he determined that it was necessary to update, to expand the, this particular organizational structure, and Solomon must have thought that it was necessary. And so verses 7 through 19 describe Solomon's kind of national administrative districts. Some people believe that these 12 governors, or however, however we want to think about them, were eventually reduced down to tax supervisors uh, in the following chapters. We don't know to what extent they were involved in local government, it's difficult to know, but their main job was in their particular region of Israel to support the central government, right, the royal household. One of the challenges that will arise with this division of the nation into 12 districts or provinces or however you want to describe it is these new districts, right, this is a redistricting, right, we, we see this today. These new districts are not identical with the original 12 tribal territories that Joshua assigned. They seem to largely overlap, but they are not exact. There, there are some differences. There are various shapes. They're not all of the same size. They, they, they are based perhaps on the geography and the people, maybe even the abilities of some of the people. These districts kind of loosely correspond, but they do not precisely overlap with the 12 original tribal territories. Solomon was a, king of a lar- he was a king of a large and growing kingdom. Solomon was following the same basic advice that we heard in our scripture reading, right? The counsel that Jethro gave to Moses... Back in Exodus 18, as we heard that read to us tonight, Jethro counseled Moses about something in relation to leadership and organization because he recognized this is not efficient, right? He recognized Moses is getting all worn out and tired, and the people, they have to wait all day on one guy. And so even Jethro understood that if you want to have a better, effective administration, you have to delegate something, right? You have to create some smaller, more manageable units. And we saw that in Exodus 18. It's also true here with Solomon's kingdom. I don't know if Jethro was a true believer or not. I I, I want to say yes, because he says some good things, and they do have a kind of fellowship meal there. He seems to acknowledge the true God but he never joins to my knowledge, he never joins with Israel, I don't know. I I view him positive here. But he does recognize in either common grace or just common sense that Moses, you can't do everything by yourself. You need to delegate something. He says, Moses, you're going to be exhausted in God's people, right? They're not getting the justice that they need in a timely manner. Some scholars doubt that Solomon's breakdown here. They they believe that these men were serving not for the glory of God, but for for other reasons, perhaps financial reasons. They describe these 12 administrators as basically those that were called to stock the commissary for the royal court. And later when Solomon starts to live large and these royal appetites begin to grow, it's like the Internal Revenue Service is out of control in Israel. And that does seem to be something that happens. Essentially, this is a form of taxation, isn't it? It's not a burden yet in Israel, but it's going to become a serious burden by the time we come to 1 Kings chapter 12. And Samuel warned about this, that the king could place excessive demands on the people, and the people are not going to like it. One author thinks that Solomon over the the years of his reign, right, it's good to hear, but over the years of his reign, Solomon becomes preoccupied, right, with taxation. And he comments, uh, Brueggemann comments how, you know, that's often the way that modern and all governments uh, act and become preoccupied with as well. And he says, when that happens, Solomon begins to neglect his duty as king to truly care for God's people. Now, I don't think that we can doubt in this organizational wisdom at this point in Solomon's life and reign. It was quite effective, it seems to be very efficient, and it seemed to produce the results that Solomon wanted to achieve. But it did lead to some kind of reorganization. Donald Weissman believes it is this is one of the Examples of Solomon's organizational uh, wisdom, or lack thereof, which led and sowed the seed of the rupture that would eventually separate the northern kingdom and Judah. And that's coming, isn't it? It's coming in the book of Kings. But at present, Solomon's organizational wisdom not only greatly benefited the nation, but in verse 20, as I said earlier, the people were happy with this arrangement. How do we experience This organizational wisdom in our life is it important to us? From this perspective, we should already realize that the concepts of organization, administration, structure, and planning—they should not be reduced down to a kind of glorified human resources department. It's far better than that, isn't it? Has not God built? Structure and organization and administration into the universe itself? I think that he has. This could be illustrated in hundreds, if not thousands, of ways. Just stopping to think about how God created our world is one place that we could start. God worked for six days and rested. And whatever your view on that is, we all need to have a certain period, a cycle of rest in our lives as well. That's organizational wisdom, isn't it? Furthermore, God's love for order is seen throughout the creation week. We see this divine organization in the way that God orders the sun to rule the day and the moon and the stars to rule the night. We have seasons in the year, and they are the same every year, year after year after year. God loves organization. God's creation, administration, design is seen in the tens of thousands of ways. And whether one testifies to the vastness of this universe or even to the smallness of things that exist on planet Earth. All around us we behold the order of God's creation, even in a fallen world. Bees always go to flowers, right, to get the pollen. They don't go somewhere else and try to find a new source. The way God has made the insects and bees, they always do the same thing. And as a result, we have honey and we enjoy the taste of honey. And that is a regular cycle. It is built into our world. Reichen talks about the way spiders weave their webs. Do you ever notice that they have a pattern? There is some kind of organization in what they're doing, and nature is filled with examples of these kinds of interesting patterns that they just keep repeating and repeating and repeating. You would almost think there's a God. God gave instincts to spiders to make organized webs, to make organized webs to trap and to catch food. I like watching different nature videos, but for me, watching a nature video narrated by David Attenborough, right, the BBC, can be a joyful experience that I'm kind of mesmerized by watching him testify to the beauty and the order, the organization, the administration, all throughout the animal kingdom. Sometimes it's just staggering, right? I'm not a scientist and you read, he's reading a script and it it seems impossible to escape this fact that God's order is replete in the warp and woof of everything. And it's simply staggering. The more we learn about creation, the more we behold patterns or God's organizational wisdom everywhere. There is a periodic table for what? What are those elements for? Does it change every year? Is, is it, have you ever seen that updated? It helps us to understand matter, doesn't it? Mathematics and science are involved with patterns and formulas that they work for those that understand those in beautiful ways. They're reliable, aren't they? It's because God has established order in our creation that we can understand and learn these various patterns. I mean, isn't this, how, isn't this how coaches win games? They're organized. They think about a plan. Isn't this how ladies you sew and make clothes, a dress, or whatever your hobby is? I mean, go to the local bank and say, I'd like to be a customer here because I don't like organization. Everywhere we go, we cannot avoid it. Reichen states, the order of God is also evident... In our human relationships, God has given us a certain basic structure for what we call the home. He goes on to say, in a particular home, there should be a loving, sacrificial husband and a loving, submissive wife. And that lays the foundation for marriage and family. And it should be the same all over the world. We see this in the ordering of society and even in governments. They are given the power of the sword, we heard that this, more, this morning, for doing justice, Romans 13. We see this in the instructions for the church. 1 Corinthians 14, 40 says, In which all things are to be done decently and in order. Now, of course, organization can be oppressive. It can be oppressive in a home, Right? Parents can be domineering. It can be impressive. Uh, it can be oppressive. Say in a business, in a community, in wherever we may be. Typically, the gift of order comes in the form of a few simple and necessary rules as we encounter these subject in the Bible. And I think some of this is actually quite helpful. Philip uh, Graham Ryken made a statement I, I actually agree with, and think it's very helpful to kind of be reminded with this. He says, when we follow the basic instructions that God gives to us in these particular areas, God gives us an enormous amount of freedom to make decisions to apply wisdom as Solomon did. He says this, and I I actually love this. The Bible gives astonishingly few instructions about marriage. Can I get an amen? We don't need to create all of these marriage rules that are really not found in the Bible. He says, "For example, or about the organization of a government. Instead, it gives us a minimum of basic principles, and then we are called to apply those basic principles through the process of wisdom, And people will do that differently in their lives. As long as the basic things are there, that is a starting point. First King's Four shows that Solomon had this kind of wisdom. It does this by giving us some of the mundane details of how he got things organized and how God helped him to complete all of these various projects that he is about to engage in. Sometimes we think of bureaucracy and we think, ugh, that's not joyful because most of us, we all live under situations in which it does seem terrible, doesn't it? We see all kinds of dysfunction and waste and so on, but it wasn't like that in Solomon's kingdom. Again, verse 20, his people were happy. That seems to be a rare condition among the nations of mankind. The organizational wisdom of the king was a blessing for his people. And in that sense, order always should be a blessing. Didn't God make us, right? Didn't God create us with a need for order in our lives? whenever things are in disarray we may be sure that when we are we are dealing with one we we may be sure that we uh, are dealing in one way or another with the disorientating effects of sin in a fallen world but wherever we see things that are well ordered we catch a glimpse of something of the goodness of god is there any order in the church it's sometimes common today to hear Christians who don't like church or don't like to attend church to have kind of a benevolent disdain for any talk of organizational structure in a local congregation. Unfortunate for some of these professing Christians, they have come to the point in their life where if they hear any church that talks about organization, it's all, it's all unbiblical stuff. I trust the leading of the Holy Spirit and so on. Sometimes, in smaller churches like ours, there could be a there could be an appearance of times at different times of, of something being disorganized right that 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 can happen that's fine, a lack of preparation. sometimes in larger churches, they are so organized that it leans in it leans, kind of bleeds into over professionalization. but we can learn from both situations, I would think. There are certain things and even the mega churches that have doctrines that we do not agree with that we can appreciate about how they organize some of their things. I think in that sense we could learn from one another. Both leaders and members, we need to know and appreciate this. I think all leaders know whatever service you've been in your church history in your life that organization takes a lot of time and a lot of effort, doesn't it? for whatever you're going to be doing. We have a care commission and they plan those meals, don't just appear out of nowhere. They have meetings where they talk about what they're going to do. And we could go on and on in the various ministries of this particular church or of any local church. Someone has to make the annual calendar. We have an annual business meeting. There are shepherding visits. There are weekly ministries, the security and on and on, the scheduling of people every week. There has to be order. In our worship service, we have a particular order It's generally the same about every week, isn't it? And that helps God's people. God has given us the basic instructions for how the church is to be governed, how it should be organized regarding its leaders. And also, the word administration is in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 12.28. You know what that is? Some of you may have this. It is a spiritual gift of administration, and that is critical to local churches. It's an important gift, and we should never think that it is not important. It's not spiritual bureaucracy. Sure, it could become that. Most of us don't like going to something that is poorly planned and poorly executed, We appreciate things that are properly organized because they have planned well. Darrell Davis comments that biblical wisdom is this, quote, It's not only concerned with moral and accurate judgments, but also with efficient and orderly structure that keeps chaos and waste from running life. Some of us deplore having to give attention to administrative and organizational matters, and one can so tightly structure life that one squeezes the breath out of it. Nevertheless, a few moments in a chaotic home or in a workplace lacking clear lines of authority can quickly create a thirst for order. And one commentator talks about Hurricane Katrina in 2005. Do you remember what happened in New Orleans after that hurricane blew through there? Do we look at that as a model of excellent and efficient leadership that helped the people at that time? No, it was a total disaster. One commentator said this was not a failure of compassion, but a failure of administration. They were utterly unprepared to deal with the problems that arose after the hurricane basically did destruction all around the city and brought floodwaters into the city. We can learn from that, can't we? Reichen says something similar can happen in the church. When a congregation is poorly administered, the souls of its people are placed in spiritual jeopardy. And that is why God has given to the church the office of elders and deacons in the church, a proper orderly structure providing spiritual and practical care for God's people. And yes, God has given a certain order for the church. And that would seem to indicate to all of us that we should try to live our lives and use the time that God has given to us in a way that is a wise ordering and a use of that time entrusted to us. So if you have the gift of administration, that's an encouragement here for you this evening, uh, you're appreciated in what you do. Maybe you think it's thankless and that you never are appreciated, but it's a, it's a, critical, a critical gift to a local church. And we'll simply end with a, a big picture observation. Is not the gospel of Jesus Christ a wonderful example of God the Father's organizational wisdom in saving us? I like what one author said. He says, We even see order in the plan of our salvation, which is graciously administered by the Father, sacrificially accomplished by the Son, and personally applied. By the Holy Spirit, our God is an orderly God and God's orderliness is part of his goodness. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are such a orderly God that we that we as rebels that do not deserve salvation. Lord, you took the initiative and you came up with a plan that sometimes stupefies us. Lord, you executed a plan to have your son sent into this world, and to become human as one of us, yet without sin. And Lord, growing up, keeping your law perfectly, he died on the cross, as we sung this morning, propitiation was one. Father, we're thankful for the divine plan of salvation that set us free from the disorganized and disarrayed life of sin and death. And We are thankful that we serve in the kingdom that your Son is king and rules over. And so, Lord, we pray that whatever gift you have given to us, whatever blessing the Holy Spirit enables us to do in this life, Lord, if it's administration, Lord, help us to be good at organizing for your glory in your church. And, Lord, we thank you for the time that you have given to us in our lives, and we ask, Lord, that you would help us to live in ways that please you in the use of our time. Lord, may you help us to do this for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.